Good evening. So it's called going viral. It's what happens when a video or a tweet or a blog post or a piece of music goes from relative obscurity to universal recognition almost overnight. And it's kind of what happened with Pachelbel's Canon in D major. It was written in 1620, and yet for three centuries, it lay unrecognized. Until about 1980, when people started seeing it everywhere and hearing it everywhere. It was on television shows, it was background music for you know, uh, uh, movies, and even an entrance for a wedding march. And that's kind of what happened with this verse that we're talking about tonight. Seems like we see it everywhere now. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You see it on bumper stickers, you see it as taglines and an email, even tattooed on people's bodies, on coffee mugs, and cross-stitched and framed in someone's home. It's the quintessential motivational verse. If I go to college, as opposed to going to the military, it's God's great plan for me. The spouse I marry, it's God's plan. The career path I take is because God is prospering me. Whether I have chicken fried steak for supper or ramen noodles, that's all part of God's grand plan for me. I don't have to tell you, but I will anyway, that this type of biblical interpretation is fake news. We have to be careful when reading the Bible devotionally. It's not always a tragic mistake to do so, but we got to play by the rules. Because just reading the Bible devotionally is what leads to taking these scriptures out of context and applying them in a way that they were never intended. As way of reminder, let's look at a few things that we need to keep in mind as we study scripture. The first one is the Bible was not written to you. It was written for you, but it was not written to you. There is an original audience, and our job is to determine what the message was to that original audience and then how can we take the principle or principles and apply them to our world now? So what was going on in their world and how does that today apply to our world? Secondly, I would say we need to avoid one verse theology. Context is everything. Interpret a passage based on what is happening around it. So we ask the question, what is God saying? Not what do I want God to say? And then finally, Remember that there is a bigger picture. Every piece of Scripture fits a larger narrative. And so we read Scripture with the bigger picture in mind. Take Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. One verse theology at its finest. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. What an uplifting verse, right? Plaster that on a coffee mug or on a t-shirt or put it on a bumper sticker. Just don't read the next verse. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Not quite as uplifting, is it? But it's important to read in context. Before we go claiming Scripture for ourselves... Read everything that's going on around it, not just the verses that we think belong on some inspirational, motivational poster. So, let's ruin the motivational poster this evening. And let's do so by allowing Jeremiah to make his point. And to do that, we have to start with context. So, let's go to verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 29. 
It says, now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely in, to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Now, you'll notice that this promise is directed to a specific group of people, those who are being carried away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, you'll notice that if you have headings in your Bible, because the heading right before this chapter says something like, message to exiles. That's not you, right? So we know from the get-go that this was not written to you. You are not the original audience. Jeremiah is writing to the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were about to be conquered by the Babylonians. They were about to embark on a one-way trip into exile, into slavery. And God had delivered his people before, and I'm sure the people were wondering if he was going to deliver them yet again. Jeremiah arrives on the scene, not with a, a placard, not with a, a bumper sticker that they could slap on the back of their camels. No, he comes with some bad news. And he tells them that there is no divine rescue mission. The worst case scenario is about to play out for these people. But there was good news. There was hope on the horizon. Some 70 years into the future, the, the people were going to get to return to Jerusalem. They were going to get to go home. You see, Jeremiah wasn't the only person talking during this time. There were a lot of fake prophets giving a lot of fake news. And their message was pretty simple. Don't listen to that Jeremiah guy. It's not that bad. This is going to blow over. It's not that big a deal. In fact, Jeremiah faces persecution, not from the pagans of his time, but rather the religious people were the ones who put him in stocks, the ones who ridiculed and mocked him and persecuted him. He's bringing bad news, and these false prophets were nothing more than yes-men that followed the agenda of Israel's leaders. They affirmed what the leaders wanted and claimed it was from God. So God had to put them in a timeout, a 70-year-long timeout. Now, to those sitting in timeout, here's the message. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, 
You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now, what we like to do is read these verses and individualize them. What I would rather this say is, I know the plans that I have for you, Chris McCurley, plans to prosper you, not for calamity, but for all good things. But not even those who originally received this message could have individualized him, because many of the people that were hearing this message wouldn't be around in 70 years when the exile was over. So not even they could individualize this message. I mean, what Jeremiah is saying is, you're about to go into a 70-year-long timeout, but there's hope on the horizon, not really for you people, but for the nation in general, for the nation at large, they're going to return home. Probably none of you, or not many of you, but there will be some of you that return home. But for the nation at large, you will eventually go back to Jerusalem. There is hope on the horizon. There is a plan in place, even though you're going into exile. But we read these verses, and, and we zero in on the prosper part. God has a plan for me. He's going to bless me in a way, amazing ways. But understand that God's people are being told that everything is going to be all right eventually, some 70 years in the future, for your kinfolk. But the grim reality surrounding Jeremiah 29, 11 is that hard times are in store for God's people. Eventually, there's going to be restoration. There is hope on the horizon, but only after decades of harshness. As we read a little further, we see that this future prosperity isn't for everyone anyway. I mean, for those who are faithful, there will be a hope on the horizon. But for those who are unfaithful, verses 17 and 18 tell us, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. I mean, who wants to put that on a coffee mug? Who wants to cross-stitch that and hang it on the wall? You see, God does have a plan. We can take these verses and we can apply them to our lives, no doubt. Does God have a plan for us? Absolutely. Does he plan for our welfare and not for our calamity? No doubt. Does he give us a future and a hope? Without question, right? But we are dead wrong to assume that that plan involves like mountains of money and a big house and a nice new car. We're also wrong to expect that God will make certain that I live a comfortable existence until I die at the ripe old age of 100 in my sleep. It's tragic when we apply verses this way because they're not true across the board, right? Like we've said before, when it comes to basic Bible interpretation, we can't interpret a verse or verses in, in a way that can't be applied universally in all situations, right? It's like the, the health and wealth gospel. You know, preachers preach that, you know, if you just be faithful, if you have enough faith, then God's going to bless you monetarily and all that. You can't go preach that gospel in Somalia, you know, or Rwanda. It doesn't work there. So it's a faulty gospel because the gospel should be able to be preached everywhere, right? The good news is universal. 
And it's the same way of individualizing a verse so that it, it talks about your prosperity and you individualize it so that you're going to have mountains of money and a new car and all that. You can't do that because it doesn't apply across the board. But when we look at Jeremiah 29, 11 and what we can take away from it, certainly there is hope on the horizon for us. Certainly there is a plan in place. But it's hard to see that plan when you're going through some difficulties, right? When you see everything that's going on around Jeremiah 29, I mean, it wasn't all roses and rainbows. I mean, you think about the person today that is struggling because he lost his wife and his kids in a car accident. You know, what's the plan there? God, what are, what are you doing? Where's the hope, right? You think of the person who's received a devastating diagnosis from the doctor. It's a terminal illness. You think about the person that, uh, that has lost their spouse to an extramarital affair. I mean, you think about all the difficulties that people are going through, and you see the danger in grabbing hold of these so-called life verses and assuming that they represent the totality of God and Christianity, when in actuality, they just set people up for disappointment. What happens when that miracle you prayed for doesn't come? What happens when God doesn't heal your loved one? What happens when the man of your dreams finds someone else or the woman of your dreams finds someone else? Is God not good? Does he not care? You know, God has been honest enough with us to tell us that there will be trouble in this life. This life is hard. Sometimes people cry out that life's not fair. Whoever said it would be fair? God certainly didn't. Jesus certainly didn't. But there is hope on the horizon. There is a glorious future awaiting us. It's like we're exiles, aren't we? I mean, we are, right? This present earth is not our home. We're exiles. We're waiting for the exile to be lifted. And God has promised us that while this life is tough, that there is hope on the horizon. Someday we're going to enter the promised land. Someday we're going to return home. So what do we do in the meantime? You've heard me say it before, but how do we live between the now and not yet? Because that's where we're at, right? We are currently living between the now and not yet. Well, Jeremiah tells us what God expects as he tells the people in time out. He tells them, build houses, plant gardens, Get married, have babies, seek the welfare of Babylon. God basically says, bless the ones who put you in captivity so that you will be a blessing to me and be faithful to me. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will have welfare. In essence, Jeremiah tells those in exile, get comfortable, get comfortable. You're going to be here a while. How would you feel about that if you were an Israelite? living in captivity. I don't think I would like that much. How do you feel about living in this foreign land as an exile? I know how some of you feel because I see your Facebook post, but I mean, it's not all that grand, is it? I mean, by and large, we, we live in a world that doesn't share our values and our virtues, a world that, that doesn't uphold the things that we believe are of vital importance. But, you know, the counterpart to Jeremiah in the New Testament is Peter. And if you flip over to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to notice what is written in verses 11 and 12. 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's giving instruction to exiles. Exiles of the dispersion, as he calls them. Aliens and strangers. Your version may use pilgrims and sojourners. We are living in an earthly kingdom that is juxtaposed to God's kingdom, to Christ's kingdom. These two kingdoms run alongside each other for the time being. This current kingdom will not stand, but Christ will. But in the meantime, between the now and not yet, we find ourselves dwelling in a kingdom that doesn't share our views. It's a kingdom that is at odds with our morals and our values. So how do we operate in this kingdom? Well, like the exiles in Jeremiah's day and time, we wait. We wait with anticipation. And while we wait, we conduct ourselves as citizens of a different kingdom. We abstain from fleshly things that this kingdom values. We strive to be a good influence. We promote godly principles in the hope of changing the world around us. That's what Peter tells us to do. But Peter continues with his instruction to exiles. Notice what he says, verse 13 and following. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor." If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, it's important to note that Peter was writing to Christians that were facing persecution. And according to Peter, all Christians are exiles. Exiles of the dispersion. We are waiting for the exile to be lifted so that we can be gathered together and be brought home, receive our inheritance. And Peter indicates that this exile will be over when the, quote, chief priest or chief shepherd, I should say, appears and gathers his dispersed sheep. But living in the current kingdom means that the dispersed will endure ill treatment and persecution. Yet, in the midst of adversity, Peter says, here's what you must do. Submit yourself to every human institution, do right, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, servants or slaves, submit to your masters, even the masters that are not good. Now, this had to be a cultural thing, right? Surely, surely, that's not how God expects us to act today as exiles, right? Why not? I mean, we'd like there to be a caveat, wouldn't we? We would like there to be some other information maybe or justification or an exception. We want there to be nuance, but Peter doesn't give any. Peter tells these Christians and us in the process to respond to mistreatment the way Jesus does. And how did Jesus respond? Well, he tells us, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin 
nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Can I be honest with you? This is not my knee-jerk reaction. This is not how I want to react. I'm like Doc Holliday from Tombstone. I'm your huckleberry, right? I'll turn the other cheek. I'll turn your other cheek when I slap it, right? That's how we want to be. Our instinct is to fight. Our instinct is to bite back. And yet, the message to these exiles is live peaceable. While you wait, be Jesus. So that when Jesus comes back, he finds you being Jesus. All that revenge stuff, all that vengeance stuff, that's, that's God's business. That's not your business. You are to wait, and while you wait, you are to do the work of Jesus Christ. Be faithful to God and be a blessing to the nation you live in. That's the message, right? And just like the Jews living in Babylonian captivity, wait with anticipation for the day when the exile will be over and you receive your inheritance. What does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like disruption. It doesn't look like division. It doesn't look like being a sorehead. It doesn't look like being a jerk. It doesn't look like being calloused and cynical. It doesn't look like being an idolizer of politics. It looks like being Jesus, being at peace with all men so far as possible, returning good for evil, letting God handle the revenge stuff, pursuing something bigger and being invested in something greater than this life, making a difference in this world by responding differently than the world. It's imperative that we recognize this as well, that we are kingdom citizens. What does that mean? Well, it means that we serve a king who will one day lift the exile and take us home. Until then, we wait. And we wait with eager anticipation. And while we wait, while we wait, we stir up, we stir up dissension on Facebook, right? That's what we're supposed to do. While we wait, we bite each other. We fight with each other. We get mad at each other over silly things. That's what we do while we wait, right? We focus on things that don't matter because to us they really matter. That's not what he says. As exiles, we get comfortable but not too comfortable. We build houses. We plant gardens. Perhaps we get married. Maybe we have a baby or two or three or four. And we seek the welfare of our city, our state, our nation. We do as Jeremiah's audience was instructed to do. We do as Peter instructed the dispersion to do. We act like Christ in the world that so desperately needs some good news. And we forward think. We think about what's in the future and not just the here and now. That's what gets us through between the now and not yet. We remember that there is hope on the horizon that someday we're going to go home. But until then, we be faithful so that we can realize that promise. I was watching a movie on Netflix not long ago, and I have a pretty short attention span. And I was watching this movie thinking, yeah, I'm just not into this. But I'd already gone too far. It was one of those things I'd already invested like an hour. And so I did what you can do. You can push the remote up and then you can see how much time is left on the timeline. And I realized that there's still like two hours left. Well, I'm not sitting through another two hours of this, but I've already invested too much. So you know what I did? I fast forwarded all the way to the end with about five minutes left. I got to see the ending and I realized there, there was a whole lot of unnecessary stuff in the middle. 
Folks, I've looked at the back of the Bible. I know how this thing ends. We can all hit fast forward and see how this thing turns out. But the stuff in the middle is anything but unnecessary. It is vital. Because the middle is where heaven is won or lost. What we do in the meantime, between the now and the not yet, makes an eternal difference. We are winners. So let's live like winners until the exile is lifted. How can we help you tonight? Can we pray with you? What need do you have? Can we study the Bible with you? Are you ready to put on Christ in baptism? Whatever your need is, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?